worship. I mean, without a doubt, that's why you say you're here. It could even be in your homes this morning as you were getting ready. You were talking about, well, we're going to church to worship. You may have come delighted and willingly, or you may have been brought along. But in any case, we would say we've come here today to worship. And inadvertently, whether it be from this pulpit or in other churches, commonly as we begin, an individual will say something to the extent of, let us begin our worship, or as we begin our worship, and then a certain action takes place. And that raises two important questions. The first would be, what do we mean when we say, let us worship? What is worship? And the other question is, where does worship really begin? What is the beginning of our expression of worship? Now, we know it's important. For those that were with us in our study last time, we looked at the statements that Jesus made about the importance of worship. He said that God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For such are the kinds of individuals or such individuals is the father seeking to be his worshipers. And we recognize that God's work in redemption and in salvation is to bring people to himself that will express genuine and true worship of the Lord. And whatever else may be important for the function of the local church, whatever else may be important for the universal church as the body of Christ, fundamentally, foundationally, worship is the key. Now, if that's the case, what do we mean by worship? And where does worship begin? In order to answer those questions, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans and to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read the following. I urge you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The book of Romans is Paul's great proclamation or treatise on justification by faith alone. And these two verses that we're looking at this morning are really transitional verses in this document that was penned by the Apostle Paul for the saints who were in Rome. And in the first 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has been focusing on the sovereign work of the righteous one. And in chapters 12 through 16, he is going to focus on the sanctifying walk of the redeemed ones. 
In other words, he lays down the doctrinal foundation in Romans chapters 1 through 11 that is the basis for the practice and living of the people of God in chapters 12 through 16. Doesn't mean there aren't some practical exhortations in the first 11 chapters, nor does it mean that there aren't doctrinal statements of the reason and rationale for why God's people are to do what they do in chapters 12 through 16. But the reality is the use of the imperative, the command, is much more frequent and utilized in chapters 12 through 16 than was the case in chapters 1 through 11. So as Paul develops this great treatise on justification by faith alone, we are looking at this transition of focusing on the great work that God is doing based on the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ and making it a reality and in the experience of his people to the way God's people are to live their lives in this world in chapters 12 through 16. Interestingly enough, these two verses that are transitional really set forth the priority of what is to be true of God's people. And you will notice there's two imperatives in a positive statement in these verses. The first imperative is present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your reasonable service of worship or your reasonable worship service. And the second is, Notice the verse 2 begins with the connection and, meaning he is expressing an equal idea that goes along with it in the positive statement, and be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. What needs to be the priority for God's people? You notice again, it's all centered around worship, around worship. Now, we're using this term worship, and we need to be sure we understand exactly what it means. The word in English, worship, is really the formation of two English words. The first is worth, and the second is a sub, uh, suffix, ship. And that term ship could be used with a title or with a, a name in order to express respect and honor. For example, in colonial days, a person who was in a position of rule or maybe as a landowner might have been um, called upon or designated by your lordship, meaning that he is the master who deserves honor or respect. And the idea of worth with ship means that this is the object that is worthy of, deserving of, honor or respect. And so when you and I look at this whole idea of worship, we are looking at 
an object that is deserving of honor and respect. Fundamental meaning. If I go to Webster, he defines worship as the performance of devotional acts in honor of a deity, as a church service, the act of paying divine honors to a supreme being, reverence, submissive respect, loving or admiring devotion. You know, you talk about individuals who worship their children or a husband who worships his wife. It is the idea that there is a desire to lovingly and admiringly express one's devotion and respect for that being. And so it is as it carries over to God. We've already established the fact that worship has nothing to do with the place. As Jesus said, it's not in Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans thought they ought to worship, nor is it only localized in Jerusalem, even though that's the place that God had designated for individuals to appear before him. Worship doesn't have to do as much with a place as it does with the expression of loving, admiring devotion to a person, to God himself. And that worship takes place everywhere. That worship is to take place anywhere. It's not just a designated building or a prescribed order of activity that constitutes worship. If we look at what we find here, you'll notice Paul begins with the word, therefore. This is a summation of, the conclusion from, the uh, idea of what is the appropriate expression based on what has gone before. Therefore. And what he says is, therefore, in light of what I've already said, I urge you, brethren, So he's not talking about something that is to be followed by a person outside of Christ. He is looking at what is appropriate, what is to be done by an individual that is professing faith in Christ. He is looking at an individual who is saying, I am depending upon, I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for my acceptance with God. I recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, not just one of the ways, but the only way. Jesus Christ is the truth, and Jesus Christ is the life that brings me to the Father. I have no other merit or basis for being commended to God other than the fact that Jesus Christ paid it all, and it's all to him I owe. I urge you, therefore, brethren. He is speaking to those who are professing to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Individuals who today would say, I'm a Christian. The second thing we see here is Paul is very passionate about what he is saying. You'll notice he says, I urge you, therefore. Now, this word that is translated urge is a word with strong emotional content to it. It means to plead with. 
It means to express something with intense urgency. Paul has been reflecting upon the greatness of God and what he has done. He has ended chapter 11 with a benediction of praise, expressing the fact of God is the one who has demonstrated the depth of his wisdom and his knowledge, that you and I as human beings have no capability of comprehending the mind of the Lord. And there is certainly no way that any creature could ever be responsible for telling God, this is how you ought to make it happen. Who has been his counselor? And the reality is, of him, he's the source of all things, including your very existence. Through him, he is the one who works in the course of history and providentially to bring about whatever he planned from before the foundation of the world. And why has he done it? And to him. In other words, all of creation, including you and me, are designed to bring glory to his name. Now, what is the reality of your existence? Why do you exist as a human being? You exist to bring honor and glory to God. Why is it that God made you uniquely different from anyone else? Because you are designed to bring honor and glory to God. As we look at this reality, Paul is saying, in light of who God is, what God has done, worthy of all praise, it is the recognition that I am pleading with you to give the appropriate response to this great God as is fitting for you. I urge you, therefore, and what does he say? By the mercies of God, and that little prepositional phrase, by, could be translated on the basis of or through It could be translated as because of the mercies, the compassions of God. Please notice it's plural because it is a realization that everything about us is the reality of being showered in the mercy, the grace, the compassion of God. At the beginning of this epistle, as Paul wrote to the Romans, he made it very clear to them that the goodness and the kindness of God is what should lead the unrepentant sinner to repent before the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God's world is filled with his goodness. He has lavished his kindness upon all of creation. But that's only the beginning of it. When we talk about these compassions, these mercies of God that are impacting the child of God, do you know where it all begins? When you rightfully understand you do not deserve any of them and are justly condemned before God because of who and what you are. Now that's not necessarily the most pleasant thing to think about. 
But as Paul says very vividly in chapters 1, 2, in the first half of chapter 3, every human being is without excuse. And there is none that is good. There is none that is righteous. There is no one that seeks after God. The glory of this message of God's work in justification through faith is that God seeks us. Not that we seek God. And who does God seek? The one that he unconditionally chose from before the foundation of the world to be the object of his favor. On the mercies of God, justly condemned without any excuse before God, enemies of God, having no righteousness of our own, but God remained just as well as the one who justifies the person who trusts in him. And you know how he did it? He gave his own dear son. He gave the one who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He set him forth publicly as a display of the outpouring of his wrath as a propitiation for our sin. And it is a realization that our salvation is costly. It's a gift given to us by God, but it cost him his own dear son to die as a substitute on behalf of others that we might have life in him. And the reality is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we look at this glorious work of God and the compassion he shows to the individual sinner as his personal provision of salvation, we also learn in the mercies and compassions of God that he is moving providentially to bring people to himself from different races and kindreds and tribes on the earth, recognizing the fact that as Gentiles, we had no claim on God. There were no promises he made to us like he did the Jewish nation. As Paul could write to the Ephesians, you were excluded from God. You were separated from the covenants of promise. You were without hope in the world. You are without God, but God who is rich in mercy. Even when you were dead, he made you alive. I plead with you. I beg you. I implore you. I entreat you. Therefore, because of these mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable, your logical worship expression. Not only that, but as God does all of this, he doesn't miss a beat. Every promise that he has made, he will fulfill. And just like he brought salvation to undeserving Gentiles, he will in grace bring about the fulfillment of his promises to the Jews and bring that nation into the place of blessing just as he has promised. Oh, 
Who has known the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God? How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forevermore. Amen. And so Paul says, in light of what I've been describing, this inimaginable work of God, who while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, gave his own dear son. And to understand that with him he will freely give us all things. To recognize that now in your life as a child of God, he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To understand there is no break in this salvation of the Lord, but those whom God predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he's glorified. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. What is the proper response to show that admiring, loving devotion to him? Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to the Lord. What we need to see here is to think that worship constitutes a period of time, be it an hour, be it two hours on a given day of the week, is a failure to understand worship. He says here, there is a gift, there is a present that you need to offer to God as the appropriate response to the gift that God has given to you. And you know what that gift is? Present yourself. Present your body as a holy and living sacrifice. Now, the way this imperative, this command is structured, it's looked at, it's to be a completed act on the part of the child of God. And it's to be done in a way that you sit down and think it through. God made us rational beings. And as we express our worship to him, It certainly is to include joyful emotion, but it is all based on the fact that I rightly understand where I was, what I deserved, what God gave, what God has done, and my now condition in Christ as an object of perpetual grace and love from God. What is the appropriate response to give to him? I have presented to him my body as a holy living sacrifice which is acceptable to God and is my rational, spiritual expression of worship. When we look at this term where he says, present your body, 
The first thing that we need to recognize is your body, my body, is not sinful in and of itself. Now we know that being material, the material aspect of it, it is often the vehicle by which we express sin, isn't it? Either by our action, by our thought, by our words. And we know that whatever comes out of our mouth is really an expression of what fills our inner self or our true self. But I need to realize that my physical body is not evil in and of itself. When it is used in this way, what Paul is telling us is our appropriate expression of worship is to give our body, which is equal to the total devotion of ourself to the Lord. See, we have services where people dedicate something, someone, maybe a child to the Lord. What does all that mean? Not anything at all in comparison to this. It's not something you have that you're supposed to give to him as the appropriate expression of worship. It's yourself. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God where? In your bodies. It's the vehicle by which you interface with the material world. And the point that he is making is that if you are one of those sought by the Lord with the intended purpose of giving him genuine true worship, if you are one of those who understands that worship has to do with a loving, admiring devotion to God. As Jesus Christ told the woman in Samaria, if you are an individual that properly understands all of what God is and has done for you, there is only one logical, one rational, one appropriate response that you can give. And that is what was on the lips of Isaiah when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory, when he recognized that he was a man of unclean lips living among a sinful people, God cleansed Isaiah and Isaiah's response when he heard the Lord say, whom shall we send, who will go for us? Do you know what Isaiah's response was? Lord, here am I, send me. That was the beginning of Isaiah's worship. And brother and sister in Christ, that's where worship begins. When you can think through, what does God really deserve? As my creator, what does God really deserve as my redeemer and savior? What does God really deserve for the expressions of his mercy and grace to me in Jesus Christ? When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. Why, it's love so amazing, so divine, that demands 
my life, my soul, my all. When we start talking about worship, and we certainly talk about the beginning of worship, it isn't something that is initiated by someone say, as we begin our worship, or let's begin our worship by, because the reality is every one of us, as is true of every other human being, worships something or someone. And worship has to do with what is your life dedicated to? What are you living for? Worship is what really matters to you. What really is the priority in your life? And Jesus Christ made it very clear, you have something that is the non-negotiable priority in your life. And the reality is you can't serve two masters. The Greek word that is translated in my Bible as your service of worship or a worship service is really the word that has to do with serving in the temple, serving in the place where God is being honored. And the whole point is it's what your life is devoted to what you are living for, that constitutes genuine worship. And for worship to really begin with you as an individual, it doesn't begin when music starts to play or someone calls us to order and to worship. It begins with, Lord, here am I, send me. What I alluded to before was Jesus' statement where he said, no man can serve two masters. He'll cling to the one and look down his nose at or despise the other. He'll obey the one and disobey the other. In other words, you are either living for you have either determined that material things and the things of this world are worthy of your devotion or you are living for and you have determined that God is the one that's worthy for your devotion. And when you give yourself to God as that which delights his heart, acceptable to God, a living sacrifice that without reservation is saying, Lord, use me as you will. My life is devoted to honoring and glorifying you. That is your logical, your reasonable, translated in my version as your spiritual worship. When John Knox looked at this idea, he said, this is the worship from you as rational creatures. That's how God made you distinct and different from the rest of creation. 
You were created to reflect his image. You were made in his likeness. And if you think about what God did to you as one deserving his eternal wrath in giving you eternal life by his grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, everything else is mocking God. To think God must be pleased because I decided to go to church today instead of enjoying the weekend doing something else. And if the gift is given, the reason Paul urged and implored, instead of saying, I command you to present your bodies as a holy living sacrifice, is because God takes delight in hilarious givers, not in those who because of restraint or compulsion, because everyone else is doing it, thinking that they need to do it also. But that you as an individual say, oh Lord, how great are your mercies to me. How undeserving I am of all of your benefits. What a blessing and a privilege is mine to have my sins washed away, to be called your child today, and to look forward to that blessed hope of being with you for all eternity and never experiencing the wrath that I deserve because you poured it out on your son. Here I am, Lord. I want to be devoted to you. I want my life to count for eternity. I want my life to bring honor and glory to your name. Where does worship begin? It begins with you saying, Lord, with all you've done for me, the only appropriate response that I can give is here I am, Lord. Use me for your glory. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you again for your truth. I pray that you would stir our hearts to comprehend and understand how great is your salvation, how marvelous is your grace, and that as a people we would give you the worship that you and you alone so deserve our lives as living and holy sacrifices, devoted lovingly and admiring to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.